Great. Let's read together then, shall we, from the book of Acts. It's brilliant to be here with you this morning. Thank you for the invitation. And uh, we're following this series of um, adventures in the book of Acts through to chapter 17. And we'll start Acts 17, verse 1. This is what it says. When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, that's the Apostle Paul and his sidekick Silas, and by now Luke and Timothy as well, when they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-feeding Greeks and not a few prominent women. But the Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a, a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They're all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. As soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Right, that's our passage for this morning. And... Uh, Excuse me. Uh, let's just see where we are actually on the map, if I can make this thing work now. Let's just see if this is going to work for us. It's the first time I've had this little implement this morning in use, and it's not doing anything right now. It's switched on, and it's not working. Brilliant. It was before the start of the service. Oh, okay. Oops, I ignored it. That's us. Ah, good. Right, fine. Okay. Did I do that, or did you do that, Kev? <laughs> no idea. <laughs> let's just... While you're listening to me, just pray very hard. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So here's the map of uh, where Paul has been. If you look at the little map, you can see that the big map is that red square kind of down there on it. And uh, that's where Thessalonica is. Uh, the smaller map shows you where Paul has come from. He and Silas have come from Antioch, which is around there. They've been right through that landmass on the right-hand side of the little map, which is Turkey. They've gone across to Philippi, the first time the gospel has got to Europe, and having had various adventures in Philippi, including a, a night in prison when snows fell down, uh, they've now moved on, and uh, they've moved past Amphipolis and uh, um, uh, Apollonia. There's uh, Philippi in the, the, the yellow circle there, Amphipolis and Apollonia are down there, and now they've come to Thessalonica. Why did they miss Amphipolis and Apollonia, which were reasonably large places? Well, two reasons, I reckon. First of all, they were fairly close to Philippi. <laughs> and Paul's strategy throughout Acts, as you can see, is to hit some big centers that are a reasonable distance apart because he knows if he can just spread his message there and leave a few people who are excited about the new life they've had in Jesus, the message will spread throughout that whole country area. And so Amphipolis and Apollonia were just too close to Philippi. Philippi would do the job from there. On the other hand, too, Amphipolis and Apollonia didn't have a synagogue. And Paul, who was in a hurry to get around as much of the Mediterranean as he could to spread the good news about Jesus, wanted to go to people who would understand. And he knew that in synagogues, he would find Jewish people who knew all about the Old Testament, 
and Gentiles who uh, admired the Jews, the people who are called in our passage God-fearing Greeks, people who started coming to synagogue services because they thought there was something there that they, they hadn't really found out about yet. So they too were learning about the Old Testament and uh, they were uh, ready to understand the message about Jesus. So Paul goes on then to Thessalonica. And here in Thessalonica, uh, he finds a flourishing city. This is what the Roman marketplace looks like these days. Don't go to Thessalonica, though, looking for Roman remains, because they're not that great. They've just started digging up over the last few years, but there's not that much left behind. However, you can see the marketplace. It's on a lower level than the city. The modern city's been built on top of all of those remains, and they're just starting to excavate the uh, original level. But this is the old Agora, the marketplace, uh, in, in Thessalonica, and in our story, where they had uh, uh, some people, what do they call them here in my translation, uh, from the marketplace, the, 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 the wrong page, there we are, um, they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, well, the word for those is agorai in Greek, which means people that hung around the marketplace, leaning against those pillars you can see in the, the picture there, just waiting for some mischief that they could get involved in. And uh, so those, that's where they used to hang about, the people who started the riot in this town and uh, got in Paul's way as a result. So you can see what the city was like. It was, a, it was a fairly prosperous, big city. It was a city with a proud history. It was a Roman free city now, which meant it was able to appoint its own magistrates and set its own laws uh, under the supervision of a Roman uh, uh, official who was responsible for the city. But they still had a fair amount of freedom. And there was a big synagogue. It was a trading center. It was right on the, 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 the trading route that went all the way to Rome. And as a result, there were lots of Jewish merchants who'd settled there and they'd brought their synagogue with them. So uh, that's where Paul was. And I want to talk about just three things in the story that we've looked at briefly. First of all, the method. Oops, too many presses now. I'm getting used to this thing. Sorry. The method he used, the results he saw, and finally the charges he faced from the people who brought him into trouble with the five city magistrates. So let's look at those three things. First of all, the methods Paul used. Because Paul, by now, uh, has been preaching in quite a few places. He's done one missionary trip with Barnabas. He's on his second one now with Silas. And he knows how to introduce the gospel to people who don't understand it. And God picked Paul for that purpose. He wasn't given a training course. He didn't have a divine manual that dropped down from the sky. He just had to learn by doing it. But Paul picked, uh, God picked Paul because he knew he would do it right. <laughs> and so we can learn a lot from the book of Acts about the way that Paul went to work. And uh, it's important, I think, that we do think about that right now because we're just coming out of lockdown. Normal life is starting to resume. You should see the traffic on the hill this morning. It's unbelievable. And uh, as a result, as normal life opens up again, we've had a break. And now we're going back into day-to-day -day contact with other people very, very soon. And we have just that little window of time before we get there to think about, how do I present the gospel to other people? Do people hear the good news from me in the right way or not? And we've got time to sharpen up our act before we actually get the opportunities given us by God once again. So what methods did Paul use? Well, there are various words in our passage, I think, which uh, describe it and are important. First of all, he preached or he proclaimed. That's the whole thing he was doing. But when Paul was preaching, although he did um, speak to everybody at once in the synagogue, it wasn't what we would think of as preaching now most of the time. 
It wasn't standing in front of an audience. It was a day-to-day contact with people through whom, through which she could proclaim in all sorts of conversations with small groups, with individuals, the gospel to them. So what's involved in preaching? Well, there are various other words. And preaching includes things like this. He reasoned. That's the first word that's used. He reasoned with them. And there were two things he did as he reasoned. First of all, he explained. And second, he proved. Now, those words in Greek don't necessarily mean quite the same as they do in English. So let's have a look at the whole thing. What do these four words mean? First of all, he preached. Well, that word means to announce a message decisively. To get it across in such a way so people know exactly where you're coming from and realize it's important. And if you're going to do that, you need to do those other three things as well. So what does he reason mean? Well, that's uh, from a, a, a Greek word that to speak through from one side to another. To get two sides and bring them together comprehensively. And what that means really is to understand who you're talking to and what they're thinking about and to unpick, unscramble the knots in their thinking and demolish all of the blocks that get in the way and make sure that you're really talking to one another. So you're presenting your message in terms that the other person can understand. And they can think, yeah, okay, I can see that now. That is good news. If that was true, that would answer a lot of problems I've got in my life. Yes, I can see why this guy's so excited about his message. To speak through across the barrier. To reason is not just to say, well, A equals B and B equals C and therefore D. It's not that way. It's, a, it's a speaking the language of the other person. So he reasoned with them, and that means explaining and proving. What is explaining? Well, explaining means to open fully. That's what the Greek word is all about. To open something up so that people can say, wow, I can see it all now. Wow, that is incredible. Right, I understand what you're talking about. So it means reasoning, uh, making the other person uh, understand from where he is, how what he's now connects with what you've got. And it means to explain, to open up what you've got so that it becomes fully obvious to the other person. And then there's to prove. What does that mean? Well, that again comes from a Greek word, which means to place alongside, to bring things together that you need. It's the same word that's used sometimes uh, for serving somebody a meal. You know, when you're in a restaurant and the, the waitress brings your order and says, now you're the pasta, you're the fish. Oh, let's see, I'll just get you some water as well. Have you got everything now? Okay, enjoy. You know, the way they do. Terrible phrase, but that's what she says. And uh, um, that's, that's, that's the kind of thing that's talked about here. Bringing everything to the table that's necessary. So being prepared to, to, to come out with evidence that supports your position. I mean, nobody should ever say to us, so why do you believe in Jesus? Only for us to say, uh, don't know really. I went to Sunday school once. No, we've got to have reasons. We've got to have evidence. And that's what that one is talking about. So if you think about those words together, to preach means three things. First of all, it means knowing your hearers, understanding where they are, what the problems in their life are, what situation they're coming from, and how what you've got applies to them. Because we're living in a time, aren't we, when the gospel seems completely irrelevant to a majority of people living in Britain. They're living on a different planet. They're not looking for the answers we've got. As Paul Simon once said in the days of Simon and Garfunkel, if Jesus is the answer, what's the question? 
And if people keep asking the questions we want them to be asking, we've got to get to the questions that they are asking and show them how Jesus fits that situation. Um, second thing, then, is, 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 is this uh, business about opening something out fully. And that means knowing your message, knowing what the gospel actually is. I mean, if somebody stopped stop you on the street outside when you go out of here, I hope it doesn't happen, point a gun to your temple and say, tell me the gospel within 30 seconds or I will blow your brains out, could you do it? Well, you might have 25 seconds of panic before you got started, I suppose, <laughs> but uh, could you do it? Can you explain in a nutshell exactly what the good news is? Could you do that? Or would you oh, help me, I need the vicar. You can't do that, do you? You've just, you're on your own. You've got to know your message and be able to put it across. And the third thing you need is to know your evidence. What basis do you have for saying this? When you say, Jesus rose from the dead and he's alive today. And people say, well, how do you prove that? How do you know that? Oh, I just feel it in my heart. That's not good enough, is it? You need some grounds that make sense out in the real world for what you believe. Otherwise, people will think you've just taken on some kind of religious fantasy that's got no bearing on real life whatsoever. Paul wasn't like that. He knew what his hearers, where his hearers were coming from, both the Jews and the Greeks amongst them. He knew what his message was because he'd refined it over months and months of telling all sorts of audiences. And he knew the evidence. He was able to show from the scriptures that the Christ must suffer. And second, he knew from, from what had happened uh, in, in Jerusalem not very long ago that Jesus had fitted the bill for all of those things. And so if the Christ must suffer and Jesus had done everything that the Old Testament said he would, bring the two together and what have you got? Jesus is the Messiah. And so Paul was good at doing that. We need to learn, don't we, how to do that to, to with other people. But let's move on. The second thing is the results that Paul saw. He changed things big time. And I was tempted to read 1 Thessalonians 1 this morning, but you can do that for yourself afterwards if you want, because that is a very clear uh, um, illustration of exactly what Paul achieved in Thessalonica. When you read the 10 verses you've read, you might think, well, he was there for three weeks. He was possibly there a bit longer. I'll explain that perhaps in a moment. But uh, he was there a very short space of time anyhow, uh, the longest he could have possibly been in Thessalonica was between December and May. So that's maybe four months of work. That's not long to plant a church, sir. Then he gets thrown out, smuggled out of the city, sent on to Berea. Wonder what happened to the church? Well, you read First Thessalonians, especially chapter 1. And it's the earliest letter, we think, probably in the New Testament. It was written not long after Paul was here. He was here in, we think, AD 50. And 1 Thessalonians probably dates from A.D. 51. And he wrote back to them so quickly because he was just so overjoyed with the way that uh, things had uh, uh, panned out for them. When he left Thessalonica, he was, he was obviously heartbroken. Things had started going so well. He'd made so many friends in that city. So many people had become Christians. It had been a fantastic place to be. And now suddenly he was hustled out of it and he couldn't work there any longer. And he wasn't sure whether those people would survive or whether they'd go back to Judaism or paganism or whatever. And he wrote Thessalonians because Timothy had finally got back to Thessalonica and come back to Paul and said, you know what? They're doing brilliantly. Everybody's talking about them all over the place. Their faith is just the, the, the talking point all over everywhere. And Paul began to realize that something really had been done. It had been done by God and not by him. You know, sometimes... 
we think that uh, you need the right preacher, you need the right circumstances, you need the right person. God can use almost anything uh, to, to further his kingdom. I remember once listening to an old J uh, Chinese preacher called George Chen at the Lausanne Conference in Manila in the Philippines. People sounds posh, but actually I was only there to sell books. I got a ticket to go as, as, uh, to run the bookstall for World Evangelical Fellowship, whom I worked for in those days. But I got into some of the sessions, and I remember George Chen was speaking one night, and he talked about how he'd uh, been a pastor in the Salt Province in China uh, for some years in the 1960s, and uh, he'd seen churches grow, young people converted, good things happen, and then the Cultural Revolution had come along, and he'd been hustled into jail, and he hadn't got out for years and years. He said, all the time I was in jail, my heart was sorry because I did not know what was happening to my faithful Christians back at home. And he said, as soon as freedom came, I hurried back to the Salt Province and I found new churches led by people who'd been new converts in my day. I found young families who'd been in my Sunday school. I found all kinds of people who were worshipping Jesus and telling other people about him. And I said to them, who has been here? What preacher? What evangelist has done this? And he said, and they said to me, nobody has been here. Jesus has done this. We are not essential to the process. But God gives us the privilege of being involved. And so when we do have the chance to be there, as Paul did in, in Thessalonica, we've got to use that chance to the full. So that when we're not there, God can go on working. So what results did he see? Well, I think there are three that uh, uh, stand out in First Thessalonians 1 anyway, and to some extent in this chapter here. First of all, transformation. Lives were changed. They were turned around completely. And there were all sorts of different groups of people who were involved. But Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians, his relief that it hadn't all fallen apart. You know, brother, she says, that our visit to you was not a failure. And clearly he was thinking it had been when before Timothy came back with the good news. He says, when I could stand it no longer, I started to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter might have tempted you and our efforts might have been useless. But it didn't work that way. They became Christians, in, uh, and, and they stuck to what they'd, they'd received. There were all sorts of reasons uh, re for that. When they got the message of the cross and the resurrection, I guess there were four groups of people in Thessalonica that were affected. Three of them are listed here in chapter 17. The first group are the Jews. Some Jews believed and stuck to Paul. And uh, they were people who had not found satisfaction in their ancient religion but they kept on worshiping believing that one of these days god would send along the answer and god just glad but there were also people who were uh, um, gr greek and uh, they are called in the new testament sibomanoi and sibomanoi means people who are worshiping greeks people who'd come to the synagogue because they'd got tired of their old greek religion and begun to realize that all of these myths didn't make any sense whatsoever. And they found in Judaism the worship of the one God, a God who was moral, a God who cared about people, a God who was in, uh, powerful and in charge. All of the things that the Greek gods weren't. And so they were inching towards an understanding of God. They hadn't got there yet, but they thought that in coming to the synagogue they might just find something. Then there were, uh, it says in chapter 17, uh, a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. <laughs> and in the next bit, when you go on to Berea, you'll find that prominent women get mentioned again. And several places uh, in the next few chapters when he's in Greece. Why is that? Well, it's because in Macedonia, in northern Greece, women were much more respected than they were in the rest of Roman culture. 
And uh, one uh, history of the Hellenistic civilization says this, if Macedonia produced perhaps the most competent group of men the world had yet seen, think of Philip of Macedon, Alexander the Great, and so on, the women were in all respects the men's counterparts. They played a large part in affairs, received envoys, obtained concessions from them for their husbands, built temples, founded cities, engaged mercenaries, commanded armies, held fortresses, and acted on occasion as regents or even co-rulers. Women in Macedonia were used to having hands-on power. <laughs> they made things happen. They were some of the most powerful people in the community. And these women, who were looking for something that would fulfill their lives, heard in the gospel of the synagogue something that was going on that uh, they could get involved in. And there's a fourth group, which is not mentioned here, but Paul writes to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 1 and says, you know, some of you turn to God, the living God, from worshipping idols. And so there weren't just Solomonoi, people who worshipped uh, God in the synagogue, there were also Greeks whose whole life had been about idolatry up to that point. No wonder Thessalonica was only 30 miles away from Mount Olympus, where the gods were supposed to live. So there was plenty of paganism and superstition around. But some of the Greeks who'd been involved in that sort of stuff found in Paul's gospel something quite different. So the gospel then, as now, was answering all sorts of questions for the, 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 the Jews who were looking for understanding of the Old Testament of how it all fitted together, of what God was doing. They believed, but they didn't understand what God was up to. This was the fulfillment they'd been looking for. Or the, the God-fearers who were looking for spiritual certainty, who were coming to the synagogue looking for something they hadn't found yet. The gospel just fitted in like the missing piece of the jigsaw. This is what we've been after, a living God whose son came to earth, died, and rose again to bring new life to here and now. A third group, where the, the, the women were looking for purpose. What do I do with my life? Here I am in a situation where I can make a difference in society. What do I do? What's it all about? What is life for? And these are still the things that people are looking for today, aren't they? The idolaters, the, the uh, uh, Greeks who were stuck in traditional religion until Paul came along, were looking for satisfaction. What's going to make my life complete? These old stories about gods are just flim-flam and rubbish. How do I find something that makes my, my life fit together? And people are still looking for those things today, aren't they? Understanding, spiritual certainty, a purpose in life, and satisfaction. And if we know how to relate it, the gospel to them, we can see the same kind of difference. And it created a loving community too. The great thing that comes out of, of, of uh, Thessalonica and the thing that kept that small church together, despite all the pressures on them, was the fact that they really loved one another. And uh, Tom writes uh, in his great biography of Paul, and a great follow-up to the series might be used to read that book, because it's the best biography of Paul I've seen in years and years. He says this, Paul looks back on his time in northern Greece with no doubt some shocking memories, but with an overarching sense that he now belongs with these communities, and they with him. Antioch, his original base, is far away. He's discovering is not exactly a new home because he would never spend very long in northern Greece, but a place where he's left part of his heart, a place from which he might derive either real encouragement or devastating disappointment. If it all fall, fell apart, he'd be broken. But if they kept on going, my mind would mean so much to him. And Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, you know, we shared not only the gospel of God with you, but our own selves also. He says that we were like a nursing mother you, with you. We were like a father with his children. And so if you want to see people become Christians and stick, that's the way you've got to be. 
You've got to love them into the kingdom of God. And that means spending time with them. Never think that Paul's three sermons in the synagogue were all he did for the Thessalonians. Do you notice what happens when these rough guys from the marketplace come to try to find Paul and Silas? They head for the synagogue. They head straight for Jason's house. Because clearly Jason's house had become a center of Christian discussion, argument, chilling out, hanging about. <laughs> and Paul had used that place as, as, as just a sitting point for those who were learning how to become brothers and sisters. And so when the mob burst into Jason's house, they didn't find Paul and Silas there. They were out doing something else. But there were a few of the brothers there. And that's interesting, isn't it? They just naturally came together. And if you want to lead people to Christ, see them stick. You've got to pour your life into them too. We shared with you, says Paul, not only the gospel, but uh, our own selves as well. Um, we preached uh, Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. That's how it works. David Shepard was uh, uh, already a, a very noted university cricketer when one day crossing the quad in Cambridge, a student that he knew a little bit but not very well stopped him and invited him to tea in his room. And Shepherd was surprised, so he said, yep, okay, fair enough. And he went to tea in that student's room the next day. And he tried to talk to him about cricket because he knew that David Shepherd was a great cricketer already. He wasn't a test cricketer yet. He would be one of the, 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 the best uh, cricketers in Engli English history, but he wasn't there yet. He was playing for the university, though. And so this young guy obviously learned up all about cricket, just jump a conversation going with David Shepherd. And of course you can learn about cricket very quickly. If you're American, you can never understand cricket anyway. <laughs> and uh, so he made all sorts of mistakes. He clearly didn't know anything very much. And David Shepherd found it quite amusing, really. But, but he was touched. Why would somebody go to so much trouble just to make contact with him on something he was interested in? And he found out as they talked that it was because this guy was a Christian and he was just burning to explain the gospel to David Shepherd. And so over a period of the next few weeks, they got together more and more and Shepherd learned the gospel. It was opened up to him in full. He became a Christian, uh, captain of the England cricket team, later on one of the most influential and, and, and uh, uh, Powerful bishops of the Church of England. Powerful not in a political sense, but in the impact he had on other people's lives and social situations in, in London and in Liverpool where he made an enormous difference in his lifetime for God just because somebody had bothered to have tea with him and learn about cricket first. Okay, is there anything else? Transformation, love and courage. Yep, they were going to need courage. They were going to need to keep going through all sorts of distresses. And they did, because God had done something in that church through what Paul and Silas had been able to pour into them over just a few weeks that kept them going forever. So that's what we're looking for as we go back out there, isn't it? And get back into the world of, of other people and get mixed up with them. We are looking for God to do those kinds of things through this church, through individual members of it, that will bring other people into that sort of lifestyle too. Paul says to the, 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 the Thessalonians, you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Where's Macedonia and Achaia? Well, basically, Macedonia is northern Greece and Achaia is southern Greece. So throughout that whole area that's shaded in yellow there, 
they became a model. People in Philippi, people in Athens, people uh, in Berea looked at them and said, that's what Christians ought to be like. Wow, if we can build a church like that one in Thessalonica, we really are going somewhere. And Paul says, the Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. And that is incredible, isn't it? When people become Christians, despite the pressure placed upon them so strongly that everybody else is saying, what's happened to those people? There's something that's changed their lives. They're following another king, one Jesus. And that brings us to the last bit, you'll be glad to hear, of what we're going to say this morning. The charges Paul faced when these jealous Jews got a bunch of, of, of hoodlums and uh, went to the magistrates of the city, they had some fake charges to lay against Paul. They claimed that he was turning the world upside down. And that was a severe charge to make in those days. Because remember, this is the end of the AD 40s. And for the last 10 years, there have been all sorts of things going on, uh, which showed you that friction was there between the Jews and the Romans. In AD 41, for instance, uh, Emperor Claudius wrote a threatening letter to the city of Alexandria in Egypt. There were lots of Jews saying that, uh, the Jews were stirring up a universal plague throughout the world, and he was going to crack down hard on them. Well, he never did that. But in AD 44, there were public disturbances in Palestine. The Jews were at it again. In AD 49, the Jews were expelled from Rome because of public disturbances caused by the Jewish community. Jews were known in the 40s as troublemakers all over the Roman world. And so... Uh, the charge laid against Paul is, these guys, they've turned the world upside down. They've disturbed the peace of the Roman Empire. They're here now. We have to deal with them. And, of course, it's only in AD 50, at the end of the decade, that Paul shows up in Thessalonica. It was a wrong charge, but in another way, it was true. They had come to turn the world upside down because they were following another king, one Jesus. Now, they weren't trying to start a political revolt against Rome. That was not right. And the charge that was laid before the politarchs, well, there was, there was no substance for it. And so Paul and Silas were allowed to leave the city, provided Jason paid a large sum of money to ensure that they wouldn't come back and cause any more trouble. But they were following another king, all right. And that's what it means to be a Christian in our society today. To march to the beat of a different drummer. To be out of step with the rest of the world around you. To live for different things and different values than the rest of the world is following. This phrase is uh, the title of a very famous sermon, and with this I'm finished. When Malcolm Muggeridge became a Christian in the early 60s, he also became rector of Edinburgh University. At a time when sexual liberation and freely available drugs were something that lots of students wanted, it was the 60s. And uh, he refused to accept some of the things that students were pressing for in Edinburgh University. As a result, he resigned his rectorship because he said, you're off in a different direction from me. And before he resigned, he preached a sermon in the uh, cathedral in Edinburgh, the High Kirk of St. Giles, and explained exactly what, what his position was. The church was packed. And it, the, the sermon you're still seeing in various places on the internet because it was one of the most famous sermons ever preached in that cathedral. And he said this, what are we to do about it? This crazy gathering slide into drugs and sex and all sorts of other things. I never met a man made happy by money or worldly success or sensual indulgence, still less by the stupefaction of drugs or alcohol. We all, in one way or another, pursue these ends as the advertiser wears those. He offers them in technicolor and stereo sound, and there are many takers. 
And Magoo said this, I come back to where I began, to that other king, one Jesus. That the Christian notion that man's efforts to make himself personally and collectively happy in earthly terms are doomed to fail. He must indeed, as Christ said, be born again, be a new man, or he's nothing. So at least I have concluded, having failed to find in past experience, present dilemmas, and future expectations in any alternative proposition. As far as I am concerned, it is Christ or nothing. <laughs> and if those were the stakes back in the 60s, how much more right now? As we get ready to go back into action in normal daily life once again, let's remember what Paul did in Thessalonica. Well, thank you, John. A very uh, challenging uh, message there. And it's true, isn't it? As we go into, the, into a world, we see such conflict amongst Jesus or everything else. And yet we're reminded very simply that it is Jesus or nothing else. So let's, uh, let's draw our time to a close then. Uh, thank you for uh, coming to share the morning with us. Before we do that, I'll remind you that uh, feel free to meet and mingle outside uh, as, as ever. The two minutes distance in and the rule of six. Please, let's, let's come together and pray. Father, we thank you for the time that we've spent together this morning. We thank you that you have been here. We thank you that you have been working in individuals, people's hearts and minds. Thank you for the, uh, the work of your spirit in John this, this week and past few weeks as he's been uh, looking at this message this morning. We thank you that then that as we've heard it, Lord, help us to be challenged by it that, Father, we have an opportunity for a fresh start. And as we meet and as we mingle with friends and as family members, that, Father, we have the opportunity to share your message. Father, we have the message to share, which is that we preach Christ crucified. And that, Father, we share the message of one other King, Jesus. And yet, Father, also give us love and courage as we thought about this morning. Father, bless us by seeing transformation in our friends and our family members. But Father, also give us what Peter asked for. Give us boldness to speak. Father, help us not to remain quiet. Lord, when you uh, imagined the, the Christian, Father, you didn't imagine someone who would remain silent. You envisaged dialogue. And so, Father, give us opportunity to go out and to share your message this week. Father, thank you then for our time together. We ask your blessing on each one as we part. And as we do so, we part in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, everybody.